you have been with us for the last several weeks and you know where to turn uh, in the New Testament. If you've not been with us or joining us after a little while, we are working our way through that sermon to the Hebrews. Uh, If you're going to uh, combat fear, if you're going to stand against um, doubts, opposition, remain faithful under, maybe under persecution. Um, preacher of the Hebrews here is exhorting the young church uh, who's likely, likely outside of Rome, perhaps already facing the wrath of uh, Rome. He's exhorting them to give attention to the gospel message uh, that they've heard. And he gives them ample reason. He gives us ample reason Uh, Using support of the Old Testament uh, scriptures, they knew the Old Testament. They're quite familiar uh, with it. They placed great weight upon the Old Testament uh, as revealed uh, through the prophets. But now, all the, the trajectory of the Old Testament, all that it pointed to, all the promises of God, find their fulfillment in the eternal, incarnate, exalted Son. And uh, so Jesus is the long-expected heir in the line of David, superior to all the angelic host, um, and now the living and final word. So all of chapter 1 lays that foundation for the warning that we find in the opening of uh, chapter 2. Give attention to this message. It's been confirmed by the triune God Himself. How are they going to do that? Well, they're going to do that by keeping the person work of Jesus uh, firmly fixed before their eyes and hearts. And so we're going to pick up at verse 5 this morning and read to the end of the chapter. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Tremendous word of our God, a word that endures forever. Would you pray with me? 
Lord God, we are grateful for your word to us. For it carries your authority. This word carries your very heart for us as your people. Lord, we ask now that your word would be faithfully, truthfully proclaimed. That you would make us attentive in these moments as we consider this great word and the faithfulness of our high priest who knows us and loves us. Lord, impress that upon our hearts and minds afresh this day. Lord, you've chosen to use this word this day to do that. Be glorified, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I enjoyed a couple of phone conversations with my parents uh, last week, which is a success in itself because um, there are weeks that will go by and I won't talk to my parents and I'm kind of ashamed to, uh, to admit that. Um, so it's nice to catch up to hear how things are going in this particular season of life and uh, some encouraging things and some difficult things. Uh, as, as they get a little bit older, their bodies are, are getting uh, tired faster. They don't heal as quickly, maybe as, as they once did. And so we could actually laugh about that uh, in God's providence. Um, my parents know that they belong to Christ uh, in body and soul and they can trust Him for every day uh, that He's given but as I talk with them, I, I wish that, that I could be a little closer. I wish that, that maybe I could spend some time actually face-to-face and, and sharing this season of life uh, with them. And we're, we're very grateful for the technology, uh, but there is a felt absence, which, uh, which I think they share. Um, I, I think this is something that we, that we recognize. If you've had children in the house for 18 years, and then they go off to, to school, they go off to college or somewhere else. You come home and it's quiet, like weird quiet. Um, there's a felt absence of the children. Um, and you know this if you've had to, if you've had to say fare one, farewell to one that you love. They've gone on to glory before you. Um, you miss them and there's a felt absence. Um, and the church listening to this message they're really feeling like, like God is absent. Now they may not, they may know in their minds that He's not, that, he, that He's present with them, but their hearts just aren't convinced of this. Does He really see them? Does He really consider them to be important? Um, is this gospel message worth it? There's a felt absence of God. Um, and so their pastor is digging in here and showing them that that this Jesus, the Word, worthy of all our attention and worship, He has come near. Um, he knows them. He knows exactly what it is they are facing because He has faced this Himself. And he's able to help them endure the trials, endure the suffering because He has shared in that suffering. Um, and church, what is true for them is true for us this morning. Every one of us. The Lord Jesus knows you. He understands you. He's your creator. Um, he has shared in your human experience. Um, so this makes him not just fully qualified, but the only qualified to restore our true humanity. It's because he shared our humanity that we find this, um, this sure help in Jesus. And those are the two Kind of the two realities that I want to focus on in these verses. The shared humanity and the sure help 
of Jesus. So as we, as, as we dig in here a little bit, that the pastor has not uh, left his discussion of the uh, angels alone yet. In verse 5, then it, it bookends there in verse 16. He says that there's more to remember here about the superiority and the function of the Son over uh, the angels. Um, and not only the Son, the eternal Son of God, but all sons and daughters of God share a privilege share a purpose that the angels do not. God did not put the world to come, meaning the inhabited world uh, that is ours in in verse 5. He did not put that under the authority and the care of angels. The authority, care, control for this uh, world is given to someone else. Well, who is that someone else? We find the answer in the psalm that we have heard, uh, that we've read this morning, familiar to, uh, to most of us, and a good portion of it is quoted here, uh, though not exactly in verses 6 through 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? Made him a little, low, a little while lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Um, so what is the man that the psalmist is actually talking about? The Son of Man that is being cared for and looked after by God. That's you. You're you're that one. That's you. That's me. All humanity. All humanity made lower than the angels and occupying this earth. We are crowned with glory and honor. We're image bearers of God. We're made to be like Him. We're made to, to represent Him, to represent His rule and the way that He would rule on this earth. Right? We're, we're little, like, like little kings and queens having dominion that He entrusts uh, to us in the care of His creation. Um, and that seems to be going all right like for the first two chapters of Genesis, um, if that long. Adam is caring for the garden. He's naming the animals. He's going about the work that God has given to him to do and then everything falls apart when the one who loves death and wielding the power of death slithers into the garden. And what has that done now for our dominion care? What has this done for our glory that the psalmist speaks of? Um, I trust I'm not alone in this, but I have a I have a hard time exercising dominion over my own yard, right? You know, the, the plants die, the grass dies when you don't, don't want it to. There are critters that are destroying the yard from above and below. I, I, can't, I can't get a handle on it. Um, you know, so our creation care has been frustrated. Um, or maybe some other, you know, the meal that you were looking forward to, that you prepared, ends up, Burning, and you got to put most of it in the in the trash compactor or something. Or you did everything you could to to deliver that that package on time, but the equipment breaks down and, and it's late anyway. You use your training, you did all the all the things that you could to help a patient, but they don't seem to get any better. You hear our creation care has been frustrated. It was Francis Schaeffer who said, "We are glorious ruins. We see this in ourselves, but we see this in the way we exercise dominion." in the care of God's creation. Um, 
So in Psalm 8, it's telling us who we are, that the privilege that is ours as human beings, but we are not seeing, seeing that the way we would like. We're not seeing the, the, the way that God intended uh, for us to exercise this dominion carried out. And I think the author recognizes this. The end of verse 8 and points out what it is we do see. We do see Jesus. By faith, we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for a time, crowned with glory and honor through his obedience unto death. And he's raised to life and sits at the right hand of the Father. Now all things in subjection under his feet. So it's, it's true, that, that's true right now in the already that we live, but we still see that, and we see this fully in the, in the not yet um, at Jesus' return. So is Saul made about all men, all human beings, or about Jesus? And the answer is yes. Jesus is the man of Psalm 8. He shares in our humanity. He's the fulfillment of all human destiny. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that you and I are intended to be. And he's, he's born under the law, a law that was given, mediated by angels for a time. So he's lower for a time that he might redeem those under the law. And he could do this because he was and is the man of Psalm 8. There was a, a memorable incident that took place in Richmond, Virginia in 1865. So let you get your bearings there and what's happening in 1865. This is where the Civil War is drawing to a close. And it was a Sunday morning, maybe a lot like this, and a black gentleman entered the sanctuary of the church and walked straight to the front and knelt before the communion table. Predominantly white congregation, and so the, there are, are whispers and gasps wondering how this was possible. Um, and it just... It happened to be a morning that they were uh, going to the table, celebrating communion, and it was a shared cup. And so after this you know, awkward few moments, a layman from the congregation got up, walked down the aisle, and knelt next to that black man by the altar and prayed with him. And then a few more stood up until finally the congregation was on their knees uh, in prayer uh, before celebrating um, the sacrament. Now the layman in the church, he's, he's more well known in the battlefield. His name was Robert E. Lee. Maybe you've heard that name before. But he was among the congregation. He was one of their own. And he led the way, showing them what ought to be done. Je Jesus shares our humanity. He's one of us and leads the way. He shows us what we are to be and do as God's people. He shows us this. So Jesus, as the, the man, the Son of God, shares our humanity and He shares our family. His Father in heaven is your Father and my Father. And that's how He opens the prayer that He taught His disciples that we prayed just a few minutes ago. Our Father John chapter 20, the resurrected Jesus tells uh, Mary Magdalene, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So united to Christ, the Creator God is our Father. And Jesus is not ashamed to call the adopted children of God his brothers and sisters. And verses 11 through 13 show us the the solidarity that Jesus shares with us within the family of God. Uh, you know, we could put Jesus in the, in the eye of those prophetic words. Uh, it's Jesus who speaks the Father's name to his siblings in the midst of uh, the congregation. He leads. Jesus is the one who leads the song of praise. Jesus is the one who faithfully trusts the Father. He knows all those whom God has given him who are in this family. So let me ask you, how many of you have a sibling? I guess it doesn't have to be a sibling. I guess I, I automatically go to that. But someone in your family that uh, you've been ashamed of. Maybe present tense. Maybe you are uh, ashamed now. Uh, you're kind of wishing that, that they or you were in a different family. Because uh, sometimes we don't always represent the family well, do we? Uh, we may embarrass each other and tarnish that family name. This is one of the reasons why I, I don't put Christian stickers, Christian-themed stickers on my car. Because it's far too easy to embarrass the family name when we're about as a family by the way I drive sometimes. It's too easy to do. Um, and, and that's just behind the wheel. Consider all of life. All the rest of life where we represent the family name in all places, at all times. God, help us. But get this. Jesus is not ashamed to call you. In all of that, He's not ashamed to call you a brother or sister. He's not embarrassed by you. I mean, if anyone could be embarrassed by our rebellion and our sin against the Father, it should be the Son of God, the righteous one. But He's not. He identifies us, identifies with us as Family, not begrudgingly. He does this willingly, joyfully. You know, I wonder how that might speak into our, our attitude and approach toward other members of the family. I mean, church family or biological family. Considering how Jesus relates to us. Sharing our humanity. He is the fulfillment of God's design for us. So the more like Jesus we become, the more that we love what He loves, the more we value what He values, the more human we become. I mean, think of the fruit of the Spirit that we've been studying over the last year. So as this fruit is cultivated in us, love, joy, peace. No, let me start over. Say this with me because you know them, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a few I always kind of mix around there at the end. But I think we got all nine slices of that one fruit. Um, as this fruit is matured, as it's cultivated in cooperation with the Spirit of Christ, so is our own humanity. And the very opposite is true. And the Apostle Paul, he lays out a nice list of the fruit of the flesh, you know, right in the, in the verses before in Galatians chapter 5. Sin, the entertainment of sin, is dehumanizing. 
And so we end up acting like irrational animals, beasts suffering the wages of our wrongdoing, as Peter says. So Jesus shares our human experience. And so the preacher says that makes him a sure help to his brothers and sisters. Mentioned several ways uh, that Jesus is a sure help. I want to uh, look at just a few of them here. In verse 10, the glory of Jesus secures our own glory. As we consider how the Creator God is fully determined to restore the glory of His image bearers, a glory that's been shattered and ruined by the fall, the Father sends His Son to bring His other sons and daughters back to glory, back to their intended purpose of communion with Him, of joy with Him. So that, that this restored glory, this, this salvation, glory and salvation that we see there really go hand in hand. Um, we're saved now, yet we're glorious ruins, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. But it's going to look like Jesus. He is our sure help. He restores us to glory. And He fights for us. Um, another one of the ways He helps. He is, His enemy is our greatest enemy. And the founder of their salvation, it says there in verse 10, and that, that word could be interpreted in a number of ways. It's been interpreted as, as author or pioneer. It can even be interpreted as warrior or champion. And I sort of I lean in that direction because of the context and we find in language a little bit later in verse 14. And through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who fear who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong savory. So language of destroying, delivering, those sound like fighting words to me. Um, this is battle language. And so though he, he shared in, in our humanity and death, Jesus helps us by being our champion. He is the strong man who represents us in battle and he overcomes. We know how this works because we've seen this before when reading the Old Testament. We read of a young David who represents the armies of Israel. And so he takes this massive arsenal of stones and he approaches the representative of Israel's enemy. And so whichever one falls, David or Goliath, the army that they represent falls and is subject to the other. So the true and better David is our champion. He, he fights for us and defeats the Goliath, the one who has the power of death. See why the story is there? He destroys our adversary, which means he breaks the power of fear uh, as well. Sin enslaves us. Sin, um, sin makes us its master. Um, you think about what, what is the reward for, for our sin. We're told what the reward of sin is. For the wages of sin is death. It's death. And so we have this fear of, of death, the sure reward for sin. And the devil's going to do his level best to make sure that we do not forget that. Um, try to think more about fear. Here, we're not talking about the, 
the awe and reverence of, of fear, that healthy fear before God, but we're talking about a terror, um, a terror that I believe the evil one uses as a tool. Fear, fear is a weapon in the hands of the devil. He uses this weapon to control and accuse the brothers and sisters of Jesus. And those who serve him will use fear to do the same thing. He wants to, he wants to keep us and all the church in fear of what is to come, the wages of sin. So think about what's underneath the anxieties that you face. Um, worries, despair, panics. Is that not fear underneath those? Do you have any phobias that you can identify? Trace those fears to where they ultimately end. And a good share of the time, they will end up with a fear of death. If we take them all the way back. I mean, this, this is what's dominating the conversation around us. I mean, we live in a culture driven by fear. And this bleeds into the church at just an alarming rate how our own attitudes and actions reflect the fear and the self-preservation that surrounds us. This was the fear that the early church is facing. Who's hearing this for the first time? Maybe, maybe they're staring death itself in the face. So this pastor reminds them, as you're being reminded here this morning, that this is a direct result of the devil's schemes and accusations. Zechariah 3 gives a, a picture of our accuser. Jesus confirms the lying character of the devil on the Gospel of John, John 8. And then Revelation given to John, we hear the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. But here's the thing. Uh, the devil has a good point. He's a liar, but he's not dumb. He knows that we are unholy. He knows that we are undeserving. He knows that we are so scarred by sin that on our best days, we have nothing to stand on before holy God. And that we deserve eternal punishment. He knows this. Just pause there for a second. If you don't believe that, you know, you've got some rough spots, but you're not as, as bad as the next guy or gal. It's got to count for something. Then you really have no need for the gospel. And all that we're doing here on a Sunday morning like this is it's not going to make much sense. So may the Lord graciously use this word to bring you to repentance and faith. But when you see this, when you see with eyes of faith, and you can say with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, then you rejoice over your champion. You give thanks to God because now you have an advocate. You have a sure help for your greatest need. And so the power of fear is broken because the death of Jesus deprives the devil of the charges that he makes. They can hold no weight now before the Father, before His throne of grace. And we don't have to live a life and a spirit of fear. We can live with gratitude. We can live with a love for God and giving us uh, His Son, giving Him over to death. So let's not be enslaved by this spirit of self-preservation because we have a sure help 
even when death is on the doorstep, we have a sure help. We do not fear. So our champion, one who crushes the head of the devil, he is our merciful and faithful high priest. Uh, this is in verse uh, 17 and 18. It just shows how the shared humanity of Jesus qualifies him to be our high priest and atone for our sin. We are forgiven at such great cost, beloved. Um, it's a cost that our brother, our high priest, was mercifully willing to bear for us. And you go back in verse 10 where it says, should make the founder, there's our champion language, of their salvation perfect through suffering. So this making perfect, uh, that's language of consecration. So the priests in the Old Testament, they are set apart, consecrated for their service to God. So the suffering of Jesus consecrates Him. It qualifies Him to be our priest in service to God. And the whole you know, middle section to this sermon to the Hebrews is going to elaborate on the priestly service of Jesus. The perfect mediator between a sinful humanity, a humanity He shares, and a holy God, a holiness He shares. And there's, there's such an appropriate connection between Jesus as the deliverer, as the champion, and the high priest. Remember, that champion is chosen from among the people. Um, and then he represents them on behalf of the people. The priest is chosen from among the people, represents them before the Lord. Um, we have a sure help in the one who has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God restoring our humanity. Brothers and sisters, that sure help is yours right now. Um, the early church needed to hear this. They needed help in that, that present moment. Maybe you need help in the present. Jesus and all of His glory and majesty seated at the right hand of the Father. He's not begrudgingly giving you His attention. He's not wishing that you just... Uh, you know, get over what it is you need to get over. He is an empathetic high priest. He's sensitive to our need. He's able to help because he has shared our human experience and has driven out what has defeated what's ultimately a fear for us. So who in your life is, is really willing and, and wants to listen to you? I mean, like really wants to listen and all of the stuff that you have, who wants to hear from you with complete honesty, who in your life really gets it, who in your life really gets you. Maybe we need to talk to Him some more and trust Him more today, believing that He is near, believing that He is able to help us in every temptation, every need. He knows the temptations that you face. He knows the suffering. Because He was raised to an indestructible life, that suffering will not remain for His brothers and sisters. Jesus is the man. He shares our humanity, shows us what we're intended to be as God's image bearers. There's a beautiful one-liner here. I'll end with this commentator. He says, Psalm 8 lifts our shame-bound heads the world resists, but the Creator has come, becoming one of us in humility and emerging from death, crowned with glory and honor. That glory and honor is ours. 
And Jesus shows us what it will be again in union with him. So do not fear today. Do not fear tomorrow. You have a champion and a high priest who has and continues to intercede for you. He's doing that now. Let's let's go to the Lord. Thank him for this. Lord, it is a wonder. It is an amazing grace for us to consider the work of our high priest, the work of our champion. Lord, we can consider all day long what these roles are and what you've accomplished as our champion and high priest, but to know that you have shared our, our human experience, that which qualifies you to be both of those things is a wonder to us. Oh, thank you, merciful and faithful high priest. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, our elder brother, for coming to our rescue and for drawing near, for being a help in our greatest need. Lord, may this very word drive out the fears that may be embedded in our hearts and minds today. We face the rest of this day and face tomorrow, not in fear, but in confidence that you, O God, are near, that you provide for us, you care for us, because you are absolutely and fully qualified to do so. We give you thanks in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.